you're listening to the Pomerado Christian Church Sermon Podcast. Thank you for spending time with us today. If you're a weekly listener, welcome back. If this is your first time, we're so glad you're here and hope you consider subscribing. If you're in your car, on a run, doing things around the house, or working out, and want to connect even further and take next steps with us, visit pomerado.info. Now, enjoy this week's message. Uh, if we've not met yet, my name is JP. I uh, love an opportunity to be able to get connected with you after the service. We are closing out our series called Once Upon a Marriage, called Valuable Lessons from Biblical Couples. Now, before we, we jump into our passage this morning, we will be in the book of Hosea. If you want to start turning there, we'll be in Hosea chapter 1. Um, before we get there, though, I wonder if you've ever had a moment where, whether it was... Um, whether it was at work or maybe it was in class or whether it was uh, something in your family dynamics where you had a moment where uh, you, th- you like realized that you made a mistake and you, and you didn't know how to navigate what was next. Because you're like, if this, um, if this turns out the way that I hope it doesn't, then it could be really difficult. I remember I was preaching in the high school ministry uh, years and years ago and um, I had this like terracotta clay pot that I was trying to like create this really, you know, memorable moment for the students. And so I had them write down like as part of the service, like write down uh, things that they were, um, you know, really struggling with or felt broken about just to respond. And they would come in during the song by Jeremy Riddle. I think his name was called Sweetly Broken. And they would put it in there and they would just have this moment of like bringing this to God and offering it up to him. And I remember that I had this time like, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to have this moment where I grab this and I talk about how we're broken, but then how God can restore us in our brokenness. We, need, we can let go of all these things. And so I take this terracotta pot filled with the pieces of paper that they had written down. And I'm standing on our stage, uh, which is higher up than this. It was, it was a bigger auditorium. So I'm ready for it. And I'm like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break this pot and it's going to be very powerful. Um, and so I go and I throw it down. And uh, terracotta pots, if you're not aware, um, are much firmer on the bottom than they are on the side. And as I threw it down, instead of it um, landing on its side and breaking, you know, perfectly according to my sermon prep in my mind, it landed right on the corner or like right on the base. And as it did that, it went there, it bounced up, not quite this high, but it bounced up and then it fell. And there's this moment where I'm, I'm up there and, you know, Ever since then, I've always tried to have a backup uh, idea for if my sermon illustrations don't work. And all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, good, it broke. But then I looked down, and when I had thrown that terracotta pot onto the stage, it was a wooden stage, there was this, like, gash right where it was. And this is a church, it's, you know, it's, it, it's a big church, they, they take care of everything, and I just immediately knew I need to tell the executive pastor that I, like, cracked our stage, and I went to him right away as, as soon as I could. I was like, hey, I just want to let you know. Uh, I think one of his kids was in the, cl- uh, the group that night. So I think I might have seen him that night. And I just want to give him a heads up. And he was, he was okay with it, right? But there's this moment when, like, I don't know what to do. Um, similarly, not that I do this all the time, but there was another time when I was outside, outside on the sidewalk right by the street. And I had um, white paint and I was, pa- I was unloading some white paint for a different night. And I remember that as I was... Uh, unloading something, the white paint fell over and the can opened up and it landed on our sidewalk and it looked uh, 
eerily like the Punisher logo. Like just like, if you could think of like, like almost like a white skull and I'm like, this is it, I'm dead. Like this is what's gonna happen. And so just because I messed up the property, I'm like, I'm breaking stages, I'm staining sidewalks. And I, again, went to the person right away. I was like, hey, I'm sorry about this. Like, it's okay, don't worry about it. It's like, can I, can I like use a power wash? He's like, we'll take care of it. Um, that stain was still there when we left years later. So just a nice humble reminder for myself. Here's why I bring it up. Because there are times when there, maybe we've broken something. Maybe a relationship is stained. Maybe there's a dynamic in our lives where we have this pit in our stomach and we're thinking, oh my goodness, I don't know what to do with this. And maybe it's, you know, mine's relatively lighthearted, but some of ours that we might think of are, are very much not lighthearted and we struggle and we think, I don't know how to recover from this. I don't know how to come back, whether it's in a relationship, whether it's with work. I don't know how to, how to reestablish what has been broken. I don't know how to clean up what has been stained. And as we close or as we, we close this time of thinking about that, what I want to do is remind us that as we enter into this passage in Hosea, we're going to look at the marriage of Hosea and Gomer. And we're going to look at how Gomer is someone that we don't always want to identify with, but we're going to learn some valuable lessons from her life because Gomer paints us a picture of how we are with God. And God calls Hosea the prophet to show and to illustrate God's love for us. So as we've spent the past three weeks looking at Samson and Delilah, when two remain two, and marriages, when, when they're just complete separation, and that they're not united to Christ and they're not united to one another, and the difficulties that creates. When we took a time to look at um, Isaac and Rebecca, and how when one becomes two, how all, they started off strong and then they have creeping separateness over the years. Last week when we talked about when two becomes one, and we talked about how Aquila and Sapphira, Saf- not Sapphira, excuse me, Aquila and Priscilla have this moment where they are united. They are like a cord of three strands. They're both of their lives wrapped around God as a center strand, and it's a marriage that is beautiful. But all of these lessons ultimately need to point us to and remind us of the love that God has for us. That Jesus is the groom. We are his bride, which means you and I are far more like Gomer than we like to admit. And we need the love of God as evidence in Hosea more than we can imagine. So as we enter into this time, would you join me in a word of prayer as we prepare our hearts, no matter what we're coming into this time with, again, as we've said throughout the series, whether we are happily married or unhappily married, whether we are happily single or unhappily single, wherever you are in the relationship dynamic of being fully content or discontent, we can all learn lessons from biblical marriages. And if there's one that I want you to grasp more than even the ones we've shared before, the one we talk about today is the one that's going to, no matter where we are in our relationship with, with marriage or others, this is one that points us to God. And so this is one we can land with, especially this morning. So with that said, will you join me in a word of prayer as we get ready for what God has for us? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for each person who's part of our service today, whether live in person, live online, watching or listening later. Lord, I recognize that as we conclude this series, that there can be a lot of emotions, positive, negative, and everywhere in between when it comes to looking at marriage and recognizing that as we've taken a look at some valuable lessons from biblical couples. But Lord, may we, um, may we experience your love in maybe a, a richer way 
or maybe just to be reminded of it in a powerful way this morning as we look at the story of Hosea and Gomer. I pray that as we dive into your word, Lord, that I would decrease and that you would increase, that you would speak in a personal, powerful, impactful way to each and every one of us. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I mentioned, we are going to be looking at Hosea chapters. We're actually going to look at portions of 1, 2, and 3 um, as we look at this, uh, this drama unfold and then how it relates to God's perspective as a groom who loves his bride who has fallen away. So we're going to look at a few different dynamics. The first one that we're going to see here is this idea of when we recognize that we are Gomer, when we recognize that we have all fallen short, then it makes us lend ourselves to this humility of recognizing that we, we are fully known by God. All of our faults, all of our sins, all of the things that we can hide and mask in front of others, God knows them all. Fully known. And when we recognize we are fully known by God, the, the, the good, the bad, and the ugly, then it also reminds us that we need to come to grips with the fact that we have been unfaithful to God. Now, before you push back, you say, no, I go to church and, 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 I, and I serve and I give and I attend and I go to a small group. I'm not talking about doing the right things, but do we always have the right heart? Or are there times, like all of us have, when we've started to seek after our own idols, our own things that we want to fulfill us? Where God no longer has the seat on the throne. Instead, whatever sits on the throne, we ask God to help us achieve it. Because whatever sits on the throne of our lives is the Lord of our hearts. And so we've all been unfaithful to a God whose faithfulness never ends. Here's how we start this in chapter 1 of Hosea. I'll read verse 2 and then um, we'll, we'll do a longer chunk shortly thereafter. Verse 2 says this, When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. At first you think, why would God tell him to do this? First off, the first thought that we might have is the fact that um, it's hard for us to maybe understand the dynamic of, of what would be like an arranged marriage, right? The idea that we, in our culture, we marry for love or we marry for feeling, we marry for these things. And yet in many cultures, even currently, as well as in the past, it was arranged. So love, the, the feeling of love may not have been that first dynamic. It was the feeling of obedience that when a, a parent would pick out a spouse, that's who you marry because the families are aligned, they've agreed on it, and that's what's going to happen. So we might first bristle a little bit at the fact, like, why would God tell Hosea to marry someone? Well, because their culture, it's an arranged marriage is not that, I mean, that's, that's common. That would be the norm. But then we see that why would he have him be married to a promiscuous woman and have children with her? Says this, for like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. And it's important for us to acknowledge the dynamic of the land here because the verbiage we're going to see throughout this morning is a lot of the covenant verbiage that we see in the, in the Torah, in the first five books of the Old Testament, specifically in Deuteronomy, which I've been reading with a group of people from the church, um, that it's through the Bible app plan. It's like we start to see, we just finished the section where it's like, Deuteronomy 30, uh, 28 and 29, like here are the, the blessings for obedience and then here are the curses for disobedience. And it's emphasizing this is a covenant that you are entering into where God is their God and they are his people. That the land is this dynamic of Genesis 12 with the, um, with the Abrahamic covenant was that 
You will be a blessing to those around you. I will bless you and the land will be yours. So there's different promises, covenant promises that we see that are reflected in Hosea and we will see have been broken by the people as an adulterous wife has broken faithfulness with the husband, Hosea. So here's how we see this played out. Let's go to the next slide, please. Uh, Richard Strauss, he says this, God intended to use the prophet's personal relationship with Gomer as a penetrating object lesson of his own relationship with his unfaithful people, Israel. That the reason he calls Homer to do this is to say, this is a hard calling, Hosea, but I need the way that you love your wife to properly illustrate the way that I love my people. That no matter how promiscuous, no matter how many times their eyes wander to those around them, no matter how much that they have idolatrous and therefore adulterous hearts, I need you to show them. I need you to show them what my love is like. And so there's a, again, these are harsh lessons because we see in other sections of scripture and other prophets, there are times when God calls the prophet to experience something as an illustration. We see this from Ezekiel who was called to lay down on his left side for years in order to paint a picture of the word of the Lord. We see this in Isaiah who had to walk around naked for three years in order to make an illustration to the people before the Lord. And so it's, this is not all that abnormal in the prophetic context for the prophet to have to embody and experience a lesson that would then give them the authority and the ability to speak into God's people with God's voice. There's a picture here. Uh, this is just from an image that, um, from an article that I read. And so it's a man walking along a road. And in and of itself, it doesn't, ma- it doesn't illustrate nothing specifically. But what it is, is it points the story that um, a New Testament scholar that I've um, you quoted him before here, his name's Craig Keener, and he shares about how he's a New Testament scholar, but he loves the Old Testament, and he usually does a lot of his devotions in the Old Testament in order to kind of balance the weight or the dynamic of how much time he's spending in, in either Testament. He shares about how from early on, one of his first sermons that he wrote um, was about the story of Hosea. He shared about how he did a one-man play where he would uh, be able to share about the story of Hosea. And then he shares in this article from Christianity Today the heartbreak of recognizing what happened when his wife ended up having an affair with, his best, with her best friend's husband. And they, the best friend's husband and the wife, they left them and they ended up going to get married. He talks about how he was walking down the streets and the police pulled up to him. And they call, the police said, hey, we've received a call of a strange man walking Um, down the streets, and so we wanted to to see what's going on. And Craig just shares the story of how, you know, my wife just left me, and I'm just just walking, and I'm praying. And and the police officer, with great compassion, says, "I, I had that happen to me last year. You just keep on walking. And as he does, he says this. He says, as I walked and prayed, I felt God cut through the numbness of my heart and say, my child, Your wife has not done anything to you, as Hosea's wife did not do anything to him, that my people have not done to me. Day and night, I call to them in my love, and day and night, most of them are wrapped up in things they love more than me. And so just this this illustration of the heartbreak of I've had 
times when I've sat across from someone uh, at my previous church and having breakfast with him as he had just recently found out about his spouse's infidelity and, and just the moments that he shared about that. And he's like, I don't even know why I'm sharing this all with you because uh, he was like a mentor and someone I um, have looked up and still look up to, but someone that he's like, I don't even know why I'm sharing, but he was just sharing at an IHOP in Laverne about all the different pain and the heartache of what it was like to find out about that infidelity. Now, we continue on. Dwayne uh, Garrett, he continues and he shares about this in his devotional or his commentary. He says, Hosea has endured as husband the same treatment God has endured as covenant Lord of Israel. Remember, we're talking about covenant and the breaking of that. More than any other, Hosea has the right to speak in God's name. He has shared in God's experiences and therefore can speak with God's heart in a way that not everyone could. So if the reason that someone would be able to maybe um, have a great impact speaking to prisoners, if they were a prisoner, they could, say, they could speak into that in a way that someone who wasn't imprisoned would, would not be able to do so. Someone who struggled with certain struggles like uh, addiction or things like that can speak and to encourage people who go through that because they've had that experience and can speak from that heart. God called Hosea to a very difficult calling to be able to say, Go marry a promiscuous woman. Have kids with her. So he knows right away, this is, this is not a short term. Like, this is a marriage that you are going to establish kids and a family with. And because it's going to illustrate, though, because why do you do it? Because the land has been adulterous. So Hosea's got to be imagining, okay, it's not just that she's promiscuous now. It's that if I'm supposed to learn from this and to speak God's word, is there a chance Hosea knew while taking vows while the betrothal was taking place, while they started having their first child and their second and their third, did he know that adultery was either currently happening or would eventually happen again? And the heartbreak that comes with that, that speaks and allows him to speak um, with the voice of God, with the heartbreak of a spouse that has broken that fidelity. Hosea 1, 3, through 2 verse 1. I'm not going to read the whole thing. The, the reference will be on the screen. But here's, here's more from that story as we kind of uh, look at this section. I'll read it relatively quickly and point out a couple things. Verse 3. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. It's important that we have the mother's name there, or um, sorry, the father's name there, because some people think, well, this is just a parable. Like, this just didn't actually happen. But by giving Gomer's name and by giving the family name, it solidifies and reiterates that this was an actual person, that Hosea actually married. This wasn't a fancy sermon illustration that he came up with to illustrate it. This is a real marriage that really happened in real time. Verse 4, then the Lord said to Hosea, oh, excuse me, uh, so he married Gomer, daughter to blame, and she conceived and bore him a son. Verse 4, then the Lord said to Hosea, call him, the son, Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. And that day I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Jezreel was a place where there was a lot of um, bloodshed that went into the Old Testament. A lot of either different battles or different dynamics took place there. That, um, one of the commentators mentioned that Jezreel would have been related to bloodshed for, the, for that culture at that time, the same way that we might think of Chernobyl as for nuclear disaster. Like it was just a place where they knew, like that is a place where that, 
has been known for bloodshed. That is just, that is what is known for. Now, Jehu was someone that was called by God in order to um, do these things. So the, it's a little confusing because the NIV talks about this version that I'm reading from. Talks about how he will punish the house of Jehu. But the other commentators that I was looking at more talk about that I will bring this up and I will say, you're not Jehu isn't punished, but Israel is punished for not learning the lesson that Jehu taught. Because Jehu was the one who came in and eliminated those who were committing idolatry. And so there's a couple different words, and it's, it's a little hard. Um, different translations might say it differently. But it's basically pointing to, hey, the first child's name is a reminder of the bloodshed and is a reminder of, um, of what that impact has had on the Israelites. Verse 6. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Sidebar right here. We don't know for sure, okay? Um, but this is where there starts to become some question as to whether or not uh, Hosea was the father of these children. One of the reasons is that if you notice in verse 3, it talks about how Gomer bore him a son. Makes it specific that it's that family line. This one it doesn't talk about and neither does the latter one. So it, uh, commentators are split on that. Some say... This is evidence or this shows us that Gomer was already having an affair and these children were not the children of Hosea. There are others that are saying, no, that hasn't happened yet, but it's still something where we see. So just to bring that up is something that we're, we're, we may or may not be seeing here. Then verse 6 continues. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call her lo ruhamah, which means not loved. For I will no longer show love to Israel that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to Judah, and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen. But I, the Lord their God, will save them. After she had weaned Lo-Rohamah, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, call him Lo-Ami, which means not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Friends, these words would be so devastating for the Israelite people. That all of a sudden, God is saying, I won't keep my love uh, my covenant with Israel. Now notice he keeps it with Judah, so he's not breaking his whole covenant. But he is saying the people of Israel, the other 10 tribes that were the northern tribes that split in 1 Kings, he's saying, you're not my people anymore because you've broken fellowship. You've broken the, this, co this covenant. You've broken your vows. He's talking about, I will not love you anymore. And these are difficult words. And as people, have, we've shared before, that Steph and I, we really wanted to, to consider and to think through our girls' names and their meanings. And so we talked about Shalin, which comes from Shia, which means gift in Hebrew, and Lynn, which is short for Linda in Spanish. So it's like this idea of she's a beautiful gift. Her middle name is Joy. She's a beautiful gift that brings us joy. And Joy is Steph's middle name, so just passing down middle names from the firstborn daughter. Elise DeVay, Elise um, is, this, is this idea of like dedicated to God. And Devay, her middle name means beloved. So she's our beloved who's dedicated to God. We, we really went through and prayed through different names in order to figure out what meanings we wanted for them. So I can't imagine. I can't imagine being like, yes, here's my daughter, Shaylin, our firstborn, and I will name you not loved. I can't imagine having a son and being like, I'm going to name you not my people. That every time they called Hey, not love, did you do your chores? Hey, not people, how come this is still not? Like, the amount of pain that this would cause, and we can, we can think about it, it's like, oh yeah, that'd be silly, but I think that our names can be so powerful, and names can speak into it, and so 
God clearly saw that names were powerful because he was using their names to share a powerful message with his people. And he's saying, Hosea, this is what you are to name them. Verse 10, yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. They will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Say of your brothers, my people, and of your sisters, my loved ones. So even when God is saying, you're not my people anymore, I can't love you anymore because of how you've lived, you're, the firstborn will be bloodshed. He's still saying, and yet, there will be as, there will be as numerous as the sands of the seashore. Even when he has these moments of, I can't, you've broken this, this marriage covenant, he still holds fast. And there's a, there's a signal, there's a hint at redemption that will continue on, that there will still be uh, this hope for the people of Israel and Judah to come back together. There will still be this hope that a leader will be raised up among them and great will be the day of Jezreel. So let's take just a couple minutes to look here just to unpack this because we're going to revisit this later. So as we look at Jezreel, it's, it's referring to a place, the name itself means may God so. I didn't put in quotation marks because that's not how the scripture in this passage describes and defines the name. But lo ruhamah we see means, quote, not loved, as we see in the verse. And lo ami says, quote, not my people. Difficult names that are portraying to God's people a difficult message they needed to hear. And so the people were fully known by him. He knew all their, he knew all the good, the bad, and the ugly. And he says, and so there has to be ramifications for this. But it's not just that we're fully known. It's also this idea that Gomer learned what it meant to be truly loved. Truly loved. This idea that we've been pursued by God. That if we were just left to our own devices, once sin entered the world and there was no avenue through which we could be made right with God, that we were just uh, left alone, then, then there would literally be no hope. Then the way that the world tells us to just go drink, you know, be merry, do whatever you want, we'd say, well, yeah, I mean, if there's nothing else here, if there's no way to be made right, if we are stuck in our sin and there's no hope for escape and no hope for freedom in that, then People would just live the way they wanted. And yet, God, the story of the Bible is so much as God pursuing his people who have broken his heart. It's in the garden after sin enters the world and God walks among them, says, where are you? He's pursuing them. He's not literally unsure of their physical location. He's God. But it's, hey, we don't have this connection anymore. Where, where are you? It's the idea of Jesus coming down from the riches of heaven to the rags of a manger to pursue a people that has broken God's heart. And it's illustrated here in our story today by Hosea, the prophet, who has been cheated on and cast aside and rejected, who has then pursues his wife, Gomer. We're going to jump into Hosea 2, starting in verse 14. Verses 12 through 13 start to paint the picture of how God talks about how he wants to rebuke Israel. He wants to show them. He wants them to realize that he's the one that provided for them. That he's the one that has um, done all these good things. Because they think that, um, they're, they think, the Israelites think that it's the other gods, the other idols. It's other people who provided for them. So 
God in this passage starts to paint pictures of, I'm going I'm to make it hard for Israel. And it's going to feel like punishment, but it's not because I don't love them anymore or not because I don't have any hope that I love them again. It's because I want them to see, in God's words, that God is the one true God. He wants them to see that he's the only one that can do this. But then in verse 7, it's not on the screen, but it talks about how she's going to chase after other lovers but not catch them. She will look for them but not find them. This is such a succinct picture of what it's like when we follow our idols. When we think, we think that money or sex or fame or popularity or prosperity or productivity or anything else the world has to offer, we think that's going to be providing for us. We think that's going to be the one that's going to bring us hope and healing. And so it's like we are pursuing it. We'll chase after our idolatrous lovers but never catch them. We'll look and not be able to find them. And then, verse 7, she will say, I will go back to my husband as first, for then I was better off now. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold, which they used for Baal. So he's saying, I need, I'll do whatever it takes for them to see, for, for the people to see that. And verse 14 hits on it. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. When we think of wilderness, we think of the Israelites, we think it's a time of great pain, it's a time of punishment, it's a time in which uh, they were, because of their um, rebellion, they don't enter to the promised land. For us, when we think in our lives, wilderness, valley seasons are times when things are really tough. And that's true. But is it not also true that when times are really tough, God often feels really close when we turn to him? It's saying, I'm going to, I'm going to, allure her. I'm going to bring her to this place where she will be in the wilderness. Jeremiah 2 talks about this too. He says that I'm going to bring my bride into the wilderness. And then he almost paints this like honeymoon language, that this is time for just me and my bride, for God and his people. And this word allure is the word pata. Let's look at Chad Bird quotes it here. Um, he says, pata is a risque word. Hosea pictures God like a husband, desperate and daring, who will try every romantic ploy to win back his cheating bride. He will entice her into the wild, speak to her heart, seduce her with his love, whatever it takes to recapture her wayward heart. So it's God is pursuing her, saying, I will make things, God says, I will make things harder for people when they pursued idols and they put something else on the throne. I will make life hard for them so that they see that the idols will never satisfy them so that they will return back to their first love. And so if there are times in our lives, not all of our difficult valleys are moments like this, right? There are times when just bad things happen and we don't have an explanation, so it's not to say if something bad is happening, then you're to blame. But there are times when if God is trying to work on us, the things that we seek most over and above him will be things that we will never be able to grasp. We will chase after them but never catch them. We will seek them but never find them. Because God is saying, you were never meant to obey them. Come back to me. I will do whatever it takes to win back my bride. We read a little bit already in Hosea 2, but let's jump down to verse 15. As we read 14, here's 15. There, 
I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. The valley of Achor is the story of Joshua 7. Uh, the valley of Achan was a place of great. Uh, Achan had broken the law. His family died. The people had um, gone to take a battle after Jericho and the, the small city of Ai, A-I. Um, and they ended up losing. And so it's like someone broke the commandment to take this, the, um, the sanctified treasure or something. And they kept it for themselves. Achan was the one that did that. He, his family were killed. And it's a picture of, hey, this place was supposed to be a place of hope, but it's now a place of destruction and trouble is the word there. So we continue on. The door of Valley of Achor will become a door of hope. There she will respond as in days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. Verse 16. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. If you're following along on verse uh, 16, when it says you will no longer call me my master, the word master is the word for Lord. It's for the one overseas. And that word is the word Baal or Baal. And so even when he's saying that I will remove, you will no longer call, or excuse me, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my Baal. I will remove the name of the Baals from her lips. So it's like, I'm going to replace the idols completely from your life. And I'm going to make it so that you know I am the one on the throne because I am the husband who loves you despite the fact that you've been unfaithful. It says, I will remove the name of Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. Hear this. It's already been a broken relationship. He says, we will be betrothed once again. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice and love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. He paints the picture of a spurned husband who says, I still want to make this work. I still want to be betrothed to you. I still want you to know as much as you've hurt me. And I fully know how much you've hurt me. You are also truly loved. Verse 21, and that day I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the skies and they will respond to the earth. And the earth will respond to the grain and the new wine and the olive oil. And they will respond to Jezreel. Well, Jezreel, what did, what did that mean again? We know it's referring to a place that means bloodshed, but the word means may God sow. In other words, he says the, the whole creation will then, under my command as God, God will say under, the whole creation will be and then make it so that Israel will be fruitful again. That the olive oil and vines and the grain and the wine, they will all respond to the idea that God would sow because he's been betrothed once again. Verse 23, I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I call not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. That quote, or that table that we looked at earlier, while the name started off, you know, especially these last ones, really hard. And because these names are so negative, that's part of why people, some commentators believe that that, that son really wasn't, or excuse me, that, that daughter wasn't really loved by Jose because he wasn't, or she wasn't his child or whatever, or not my people, Regardless of whether or not Hosea was the father or not, he welcomes them back in. And what happens in Hosea 2? When it comes to God sowing in Jezreel, he's like, I will plant her for myself in the land. And so she will sow, she will reap. The one who is not loved, I will show my love to the one I called, not my loved one. 
and not my people. I will say to those called, not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. It's this bringing back of this relationship that was spurned and broken and then saying, God says, I'm, I will pursue you. I will pursue you and I'll do whatever it takes so that you would come back to me. It may mean that things are harder in the interim so that they could be better and richer in the long term. Craig Keener says this way when he's continuing that story of his life after his wife left him. He says, even in the midst of our brokenness, perhaps especially in the midst of our brokenness, his faithful love is present. That too is a message Hosea shows us. The God with the broken heart, whose love is everlasting, pursued us as far as the cross. The God with the broken heart, the story of the Bible, being God pursuing some people who have broken his heart as far as the cross. How do we see this evidenced? Well, one example of how we see this evidenced in the New Testament is Romans 5, chapter 8. But God demonstrated his own love for, it, for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you allow me to paraphrase for a moment, that while we were still broken, while our lives were still stained, Christ died for us. While we were still unwilling and unable to save ourselves, Christ died for us and made a way. That's what demonstrates God's love. And that is embodied in the love Hosea has for Gomer. The last point, we've got to run through this one. We talk about fully known, truly loved, and then sacrificially redeemed. Sacrificially redeemed. Because not only have we been unfaithful to God, not only have we been pursued by God, but we've also been bought at a price by Christ. Hosea 3, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. Now, I just had to take a moment because I'm like, this is such a powerful verse. Like, I want a t-shirt or a mug. And then I'm like, Raisin cakes? Like, this just feels like one of those ones. I'm like, I mean, I could just see, like, maybe this will be, you know, if I ever started an oatmeal brand, I'll be like, raisin cakes. Anyways, it's one of those where, what does this mean and why is this there? We see in the Old Testament that there are times when raisin cakes are used um, when David comes in and there's a celebration. He gives out raisin cakes because the idea was that there was, it was sweet and the idea is that could give uh, a lot of energy and so the fact that there's a connection between they may turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. Raisin cakes, um, there's some scholars that talk about how that may be part of a different type of idol worship. That some of the fertility cults in which uh, sexual relationships would be a way of honoring and, and, and worshiping these other idols would sometimes use raisin cakes as, you know, we're going to have sugar and we're going to get all energetic. And so this idea of they've pursued... It, relationships with other idols. They pursued that. So she's loved by another man as an adulteress. You are to love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. If nothing else, you learn more about raisin cakes today. <laughs> Continue on. And I, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethek of barley. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same way toward you. He bought her, 
Someone that was already in relationship with him. Someone that he had probably already paid a dowry for and had already purchased once as she goes away and has fallen away and intentionally went after other lovers. Then he gets to the point where he sees her and then he decides to buy her and to bring her back. 1 Corinthians 6 paints this picture for us as well. This idea when Paul is talking about for us to flee from sexual immorality and connecting those types of sins. He says all other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you, know not, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Friends, this is something that our culture would wrestle with, but it's important for us to take hold of. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. That our bodies, when we come to know the Lord, they are given to God as a temple in which the Holy Spirit lives. And then if and when we get married, then our bodies belong to our spouse in the sense of it's, it's a shared intimacy. Our bodies are never fully just our own. And so we were bought at a price. Homer, excuse me, Gomer was bought at a price, which was a Homer. That's where that came from. Let's continue on. Let's go to the next slide. So we see this. He says, uh, Richard Strauss says, so he began his search, driven by that indestructible divine love. I love how that's worded. Love that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love that never ends, quoting from 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. And he found Gomer, ragged, torn, sick, dirty, disheveled, destitute, chained to an auction block in a filthy slave market, a repulsive shadow of the woman she once was. We wonder how anyone could love her now. But he actually paid for her. He brought her home and eventually restored her to her position as his wife. While we do not find anything else in the scriptures about their relationship with each other, they probably still argued. They probably still struggled. They probably had a hard time dealing with chores. and in I mean, there's normal things that happen. But we assume that God used Hosea's supreme act of forgiving love to melt her heart and change her life. Maybe you're, you're thinking of big things that you've done and it's, you've broken something and you're like, things are broken. Maybe there's a stain in your life that you, I don't know how to get through this. I don't know where to go with this. But in the midst of being broken and stained, how beautiful is it for us to recognize that God's love can melt our hearts and still change our lives. You are never too far gone to make that U-turn and to walk back to the one who loves you the one that we've been unfaithful to and the one who's pursued us. Timothy Keller says this, and this is why we titled the different sections this way. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. That God, regardless of your marital status and, and, and contentment or discontentment in this time, let, let's focus on this last few moments in our series about valuable lessons from biblical couples. Once upon a marriage, the marriage of Hosea and Gomer shows us that we are fully known. God knows our brokenness. He knows our sin. He knows us. And on our own, of our own devices, we are disheveled and destitute and broken just like Gomer was. That we have all fallen short of the glory of God. That there are none who are righteous on our own. No, not one. And again, if that was the end of the story, this would be a tragedy. 
we also know that because even though we are fully known, and maybe especially because we're fully known and also truly loved, that's the power of the gospel that changes us. That if someone says, oh, I love you, and you never talk to them, they don't, you know, oh, I feel you're nice, that's great, that's comforting, I'm, I, it's nice to know you don't hate me, but if you don't really know me, and you say you love me, it's nice. But then to be really known and to have someone say, I don't love you, and that's our greatest fear, that is, that is heartbreaking. That's similar to how Hosea must have felt. It's similar to how uh, the mentor I sat across from at an IHOP in Laverne must have felt. And it's similar to how God felt because he showed Hosea what that felt like. But to know, to be fully known with all of our brokenness and truly loved, that is what we need most. That's the relationship that we need most. That's the hope that we need most. That's the love that we need most. And that is the lesson for today that we need most. Because we've said it before, I've quoted it several times recently, that people often need to be reminded more than they need to be instructed. You're like, okay, cool, I was instructed about raisin cakes. Great service. (laughs) It's fine. But if you were reminded that you are fully known and truly loved this morning, Friends, that kind of love that we receive from God, that's the kind that melts our hearts, changes our lives. No matter how broken things are in front of us, no matter how big the stain we've left on those around us, to be fully known and truly loved is the most beautiful kind of love we can experience. And it's the kind that God offers to each and every one of us today. Heavenly Father, I thank you for each person who is part of our service today, whether they're live in person, live online, watching or listening later throughout the week. And Lord, I pray that um, regardless of marital status, that the, the power of the gospel, the power of you, God, as one who's been spurned by a spouse, by your bride, and yet you still love, that sin still has to be dealt with. And that brokenness still has to be dealt with. That Jesus still had to pay the price, just like um, Hosea still had to pay the price for Gomer. There is a cost to this love. There's a sacrificial redemption that must take place. But God, we thank you that while we could never redeem ourselves, just like Gomer could never have redeemed herself, that you sent Jesus to be the one who redeems us, who pays the price for us, who bears the burden who welcomes us back into into relationship and then says, let's be devoted to one another. Father, I pray for anyone in this room or joining us online that maybe they don't have that relationship with you and they've never had it. It's something that they've heard about or, or their family's talked about or maybe they've not experienced it. May the beauty of the gospel penetrate in a way and speak in a way that the Holy Spirit, only you know how to best reach each and every one of us. I pray that we would be able to vision ourselves as Gomer being so easily cast aside by many, but so deeply pursued and loved by you. Father, I pray for those that are 
have followed you and have maybe fallen away or have um, struggled and are, are in a difficult valley right now. I pray that you would help them, God, to recognize that whatever idols they may be pursuing will never satisfy. They could chase after it as much as they want. They'll never find it. They'll never grab it. They could seek as much as they want. They'll never find it. May they place you on the throne of their lives and to cast down our idols. And God, I pray for all of us that as we close this time, that we would recognize no matter the stain that we feel like is too big to clean up, no matter the brokenness that we've had that we can't repair on our own, may we remember that your love, the love that has fully knows us and truly loves us and sacrificially has redeemed us, that that love can melt our hearts and change our lives today. So Lord, may we each in our own way surrender our lives to you, whether for the first time, for the millionth time, or for the first time in a long time. We surrender our lives to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We want to be a church where people are changed by God to change the world. If you want to partner with us in this way, you can start by doing these two things. The first, if you haven't subscribed to this podcast, you can do that by hitting the subscribe button wherever you're listening so you can stay connected with us and we can broaden our reach. And the second, and this might be the most important thing you do, share this message with someone you know. And as always, remember you are prayed for, cared for, and loved. See you next time.